So talking about elections, we are continuing with our series here at Behind the Lines of uh, hosting our candidates in the upcoming ACT uh, elections for 2020. And joining us this morning, we have independent candidate for Yurabi. David Pollard. David is a Canberran through and through. He was born in Kayleen and he's lived in Yurabi all his life and now with his wife is bringing up his two young children in Crace. He believes passionately in community engagement and is currently president of the Crace Community Association, president of his school PNC Association and treasurer of Gungalan Community Council. He's also a small business owner in the community and operates a family-owned software development company. David previously ran in 2016 and has registered as a party in 2020. So welcome to the show this morning, David. It's lovely to have you here. Hi, Scotty. Hi, Zena. Thanks for having me. Lovely. So our show is um, focusing on people's motivations and their vision of what they'd like to see um, also coming out of COVID, what we could do, you know, to, to make Canberra a much more fair and equitable place for everybody. So, you know, most people who get into politics are pretty passionate souls. And we're just wondering what led you on this journey? What, what inspired you? Because you've previously run in 2016 and you're, you're back again and you're actually registered as a party this time round. So what's, what's drawn you into politics? Um, well, some of those community activities that you just listed were, were the starting point, um, particularly the Christ Community Association. Uh, my wife and I lived in Palmerston before we moved to Crace. Uh, we had a little townhouse there and we had our daughter while we were still in Palmerston. Uh, but we knew that we wanted more kids so we ended up with just the two. Um, but we wanted to get a family home, put down roots in a, in a community um, and we we found Crace. So we built our, built our home in Crace. Uh, and because it was a brand new suburb, because everybody there was building... Uh, there was movements to start a community group early, uh, and I thought well, that's something I want to be a part of. We're going to, you know, we built a, a forever home. Uh, we knew that our kids were going to grow up in Crace, so I wanted to be involved, and I wanted to make sure that I was doing something to make the the community my children were going to grow up in as good as it could be. So I got involved there, um, and I think I got involved at the right time. Uh, there was, as I said, a lot of families building homes and trying to put down roots. So there was a lot of interest in in a positive community experience. Uh, a lot of community groups around are formed in response to a negative, uh, but we were fortunate that we were formed looking for a positive. Uh, and it was it was inspiring. Um, it was it was wonderful. The, the children, my children, loved what we were doing there. Uh, and I just kept looking for the next big thing, the next big thing, the next mm-hmm. big thing. And uh, and that took me to the 2016 mm-hmm. election. Wow. Was there any interest in politics when you were younger, no. like as a child or no. a teenager? No? <laughs> no. No, reasonably politically um, asleep for a lot of my youth. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and it was, yeah, it all, it all happened very quickly, um, probably five years ago, about a year before the last election. Yeah. And was there any one particular person that motivated you or anybody that um, inspired you that thought maybe this is something I'd like to do, other than all the events you just mentioned? Yeah. um, Probably not. Um, It, yeah, I I think, as I said, I hadn't really paid a lot of attention to uh, politics prior to that. Um, And I didn't really realise what I was getting into was, (laughs) was that. It was um, it was just trying to contribute back to the community. Mm. And community is such an important thing. We talk a lot about that at this station, that, you know, communities have often mobilised in response to disaster more effectively than governments, more effectively than town councils. And there's something very, very special about people who are intentionally coming together for the greater good of mm. the community. Is that sort of how things are happening with some of these newer suburbs where, you know, there's a lot more potential to create new intentional communities? Yeah, definitely. I see it um, in a lot of the Gungahlin suburbs. And we're lucky uh, to to be in that emerging mm. space um, where everybody yeah, wants to come mm. together. Uh, the, a lot of the um, the Buy Nothing groups mm. are quite popular mm. up in Gungahlin, uh, as I'm sure they are across Canberra. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the Mingle program that the government runs in brand new suburbs um, is, is a program designed to build and empower a community by the time the suburb is done. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's something that everybody wants and we're putting a lot of effort into it at the moment as well. Are you finding that with the newer um, suburbs that there's a bit more of a, uh, a younger demographic and perhaps that might contribute to wanting to create these intentional communities and facilitating change, whereas I find that 
suburbs that have maybe long-term residents um, are more suspicious of change and, and new ideas? Yeah, um, suspicious is an interesting word because we got that a little bit at the start with the Crace Community Association as well. We said, oh, hey, we're going to have a, a Christmas fate. Hmm. And people were like, what? Why? What's, I mean, great, but what's, what's your angle? Yeah, yeah. Um, and when we we um, hold, we had a, a wine and cheese night, which actually there wasn't much objection to that at all. No. There was um, usually for wine and cheese. <laughs> yeah. no. um, Food's but, always a good thing to start with. Yeah, yeah. yeah it is, it is. Um, but, yeah, so there was a little bit of that. But, no, I think you're right. The, um, the demographics in Gungahlin support it. Uh, people are... Um, there's a lot of young families, so we're all looking for those types of connections. Oh, that's great. I live in a, a rural community, so on the outskirts, and we have some multi-generational families that live there. And it's been quite different trying to mobilise the community there with some very, very um, sort of people digging their heels in where they, you know, old farming families that don't want to see a lot of change, mm. even though change is necessary. So how, how have you been able to um, engage the community when there is maybe differences of opinion or there's... Um, people just not quite sure what you're proposing and what that's going to look like and how that's going to impact them. So how does the community resolve that? Um, well, so I, I approach that type of thing with, with enthusiasm and optimism. Um, I, I think I have a good temperament for it. Um, we do have the differing of opinions um, amongst the community, but it's, it's never really got out of hand at all. Um, for the most part, we all want the same thing. One of the things that it seems, certainly it appears on the surface mm -hmm. that it's looking good. It's hard to tell if you're in an echo chamber. Mm -hmm. But Gungahlin, being a younger demographic, mm -hmm. is very connected online. Uh, there's a lot of digital communities and it's easy to find people who you agree with. Um, and it's probably easy to shut out people who you don't agree with as well. Mm. Oh, that's lovely. And what has brought you to running as an independent? Like, What was your goal rather than joining a, a major party? Yeah, it's um, that one's an interesting one because that was a, a big question uh, that I had back in 2016. In 2016, it was probably, well, I always thought um, we could we can do better. I think an, mm. an, I think an independent voice on the crossbench. For a long time, I've thought mm. that would be a good thing, um, but probably in 2016, I was. By the time I realised that was something I wanted to do, it was just too late. Mm. Uh, the, the only option yeah. left was to go myself. Yeah. Um, but I backed myself and I had yeah. a had a, um, a really interesting and, and educational time and I yeah. did reasonably well for a first time right. independent as well. Um, since 2016, I've explored a lot of different options. I didn't know what it would look mm. like, whether I join a major party, I um, join a minor party or run independent again, or as mm. I've done... Um, register as what mm -hmm. I'll call an independent party. Mm -hmm. So I still very much identify as an independent, um, but I'm working within the, the party system. Um, this way I have the same rights and responsibilities mm -hmm. as all the other parties. It goes to level the playing field a little bit. Um, in terms of the ballot paper, it certainly levels the playing field, but in terms of uh, a lot of the other benefits of the parties, they've got... They've still got it. Yeah, so what, what is the difference between an independent <coughs> running and a, and a party running? So one of the big differences is where I will appear on the ballot paper. Um, so provided I register at least two candidates for my party, which I do mm. intend to do, um, I'll have my own column. So I will my column will rotate on the ballot papers along with the major parties. On an equal number mm. of ballot papers, my column will be first and mm. I will be first on that column. So people just get the opportunity to see my name earlier mm. Um, whereas the the ungrouped independents, they call them, which also applies for parties that only nominate one candidate, uh, they all go into the last column. And that column doesn't move on the ballots. It doesn't rotate with the other ones. And so by the time people are numbering their ballot paper, they typically start left to right. They say, oh, yes, I like them. Oh, yes, I like them. Oh, yes, I like them. And by the time they get over to the right-hand side... Yeah, who are they? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, yeah, and there's often um, unknown names in there and people can be hesitant to vote for somebody who put a number next to somebody who they just don't know what it's going to mean. So, yeah, so that's one of the big differences. Uh, there's a few other differences, um, not that it's affecting me at all, unless any of your listeners are interested in donating to a <laughs> political party. Um, but um, parties can accept donations at any time ungrouped independents are only allowed to um sorry they're allowed to accept donations at any time but donations are only tax deductible if 
given to a registered candidate, which only mm. happens in the three weeks prior to the election. Mm. Um, so as I said, it hasn't been a problem for me <laughs> at this point yet. Yeah. Uh, but if people were lining up to uh, to give donations, they can donate to a party much easier than they can donate to an ungrouped. Mm. Yeah, don't have to save their pennies till three weeks before the election. Mm. Yeah. And by then, uh, candidates are going to want to have spent all of their money anyway. So you might get some reimbursement, but that's yeah. it. Yeah. And this is where it is a numbers game. You know, as you talked about, you know, exposure cost money mm. and that it's difficult um, for some of the smaller parties, the minor parties and, and independents to get that exposure. And this is why we were having everybody on the show that uh, we would like to give a platform to so that you can talk about that. Like you listened to our um, CapAd show last week, yeah. I believed, with uh, Peter Tate. And Peter was talking a lot about that um, there's a human element that's been missing in politics for a while where we haven't really had a chance to know our leaders as people. Mm. Um, you know, it's, they've more been about their policies and platforms. And, and just with what's happening in COVID, I think people are really desiring to have a more of a human connection and, you know, and make a, a, a choice when they vote for someone that, whose values align with theirs, you know, who yeah. um, is somebody they can relate to on a human level. So we talked about what communities can do that governments can't. So perhaps what do you feel that governments can do that communities can't? Um, so where I think mm. governments should be mm. focusing is, is, well, I mean, exa mm. exactly as the question is, is what the people can't. Mm. Um, so bigger infrastructure necessities, uh, that's where mm. I think mm. government should be. So health, education and communication is another big mm. one. Um, that I think we're still um, coming to grips with the fact that communication mm. is a necessity these days. Mm. It's without communication, you 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 cut off. You can't you can't apply mm. for a job. So no, it's absolutely essential. We wouldn't be broadcasting. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. So um, uh, so I think that government should be focusing on those types of things mm. and and big ticket items like climate change. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that then people can be trusted to mm -hmm. do a lot of the next tier of mm -hmm. um, activity. And how would we bring those two groups together? You know, because often there's um, a bit of conflict, how, how the government would like to do something, and then there's a lot of resistance from communities. They feel that it's, you know, they've been dictated to and yeah. they actually would like to have more of a voice and more of a say. So how do you bring those two groups together? You elect an independent. Oh, there you go. <laughs> that was the perfect answer. It's, uh, I do not think, this, and this is something that really drives me, uh, to invest so much time, energy and my own money to achieving this uh, for Canberra, mm -hmm. it's an independent can help bridge that gap. Mm -hmm. We absolutely don't have to be dictated to. It's absolutely shouldn't be mm. us first them, mm. uh, and and that's what we've got in a lot of cases. That's what it feels like we've got mm -hmm. in a lot of cases. Um, I know through mm. um, through some of those community groups, particularly Gungarland Community Council. Um, although actually, I have stepped down as treasurer in order to contest mm. there. The election, um, but yeah, we've we've seen that, and it's there's there's a lot of cooperation, but the 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 consultation is often feels after the fact. Mm. It feels like all right, well, we've made this decision. What do you think about it? We get a great community response to say, well, we don't really like what you're mm. doing there, and they said, oh well, that's you know maybe next time we'll think about those things. Mm. And then next time they make a decision yeah. and they, they maybe incorporate your feedback from last time and then they come back to you again and say, what do you think about this one? Oh, well, we don't really like that here as well. Okay, well, next time. So, yeah, I, I, I wish it wasn't that way and I know that there is a better way. So in the, in the CAPAD statement, you mentioned that you've been practising a bit of asset-based community development sort of work. Yeah, do you want to explain what that is? Yeah, it's... Um, I. I'm not an expert by any means, uh, but it's basically where you you put your community effort, um, you build your community asset, effort around the assets that you've already got, not necessarily the things that you want. So you can look to your community uh, and your community might have people who are, um, uh, I mean, if you look in any, any community, you've got somebody who knows how to cobble a website together. Uh, you've got people who've got some time on their hands who can moderate some uh, social media. Um, you might have um, retirees who love um, reading and you might have young families who are looking for somebody who can read to their children mm. while they're at work or whatever it might be. Mm. Look, look around to the assets that your community has mm. uh, and see what you can do with those assets. That's it in a nutshell. Mm. Mm. What, what are your favourite sort of tools? I know asset-based community development is like a 
once you got the concept, there's this mm. big tool bag of stuff that's been developed around the world. And mm. what are your favourite sort of methods that you use? Oh, it's. Um, I, I don't. I probably couldn't speak to this too well. Um, it's we when we started off, we were using some of the more formal structures, uh, but once we figured out what worked for our communities, we just um, we took the mindset and kept going with that. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Yep. Yeah, I did um, some asset-based community development training. Oh, it was a couple of years ago now, um, and yeah, and enjoyed all that and reinforced what I d hadn't really realised when we first started that that's what I was doing. Um, but once it was all formalised, uh, then that I could see, yeah, that. Um, yeah, it's sort of funny that it's actually a thing, isn't it? Yeah, like, yeah. Well, wouldn't you just do that? <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, it made sense. And as I said, it was something that I was um, sort of doing and sort of focusing on um, unintentionally. Yeah. And, oh, look, I think you've answered this already probably, but why did you go for local politics and not for state or, or federal politics? Um I, I think I would enjoy a tilt at federal politics down the track, um, but that's something I could probably only say recently <laughs> after being involved in the local. Uh, but I've got way too much to learn before I have a look at federal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, one of the things that um, we've seen happen a lot um, during COVID is that reconnection back to community. Like it's people by choice or by necessity have turned back to look at their community for assets, for support. Um, well, we're starting to normalise a lot of this. You know, there's, there's really good things that have come out of COVID despite all of the negatives. And I'm sure that a lot of us would like to take those things forward. You know, post-COVID, still incorporate those in, into our communities, into our um, into our Canberra that we love very much. What are you seeing are things that we could potentially bring forward from the community work that you've been doing, the, you know, community assets and make them more of a mainstream Stream, um, like normalise them per se. Yeah, um, the the hyper local things, uh, the buy nothing groups. Uh, I think we'll see a lot of um, uh, popularity uh, growth through this. Um, we've got other things like working from home. I think I think that's um, fantastic. It was something I I advocated for disrupting the normal work week in 2016. Um, I think that was a great opportunity to to reduce hours without reducing pay to go down to a, a four-day work week. Um, the, I like the evidence around that. I think uh, Scandinavia's done some really good mm, research around mm. that and they've actually increased productivity yeah. and reduced work hours. Yeah, increased yeah. productivity, reduce yeah. work hours. And if you're, if you're not reducing productivity, there's no reason why you should reduce pay. Mm. Uh, and what we're seeing at the moment is we are subsidising um, people's pay packet mm. when they're not working as much because of COVID. Um, now, obviously, productivity is is not something we should be measuring in a COVID situation, um, but yeah, it works. Uh, and it what it, one of the things that it does, and one of the things that I really value that it does, is it allows people to volunteer. It allows people to focus on creativity. It allows people to focus on further education. It allows people to better themselves so they can better their community. Uh, if they're not slaving away nine to five, um, if they only have to be working four days a week or whatever, if they, if they can make that choice. At the moment, it's not a choice. Mm. Uh, so I'd definitely like to see uh, those options continue. Mm. And I think COVID brought it all together at one time. I think over the next 10 years, we were going to see these same pressures mm. build up and build up and build up. And we would have been slowly boiling in it as opposed to... The lobster in the pot. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that this gives us the opportunity to look at it, look at the problem in one big go mm -hmm. as opposed to just letting things mm -hmm. get worse and worse and worse and worse and not realise how bad it had become. So um, with the... Uh, oh, God damn, I've forgotten the question. <laughs> I'll jump in there. Yeah, yeah, so I was just in. thinking, like, what we just talked about with this idea of um, it all happening at once because of COVID, like this is in some ways beneficial because we've got all of the infrastructure that needs to happen to make these fairly monumental changes. Um, now it can happen simultaneously and we can rebuild it in an interconnected way, mm -hmm. you know, rather than piecemealing it. Yep. So instead of just, you know, trying to focus all of our community energy on one piece, but we don't have the supports there. I think there's a lovely saying about it's all fine to build castles in the sky, but then you've got to put your foundations up under them, right? Mm. So I think this is this is what I see is coming out of this. Yeah, 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 yeah. definitely. And 
Sorry, go ahead. No, no, I, I lost. I was going to say something, but I lost that as well. No, it's yeah. catchy. It's catchy. It's catchy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, that's the end. Um, but, you know, we've seen some um, great things coming out of communities. Like we had a lady on a few weeks ago who lost a home in the Malakuta fires. And, you know, she was talking about how that the community in Malakuta has actually got tired of waiting for the powers that be to intervene and help them rebuild because it was so devastating mm. and the community got together and said okay we know what we need as a community there's a little bit of dissension not everyone's going to agree with everything but they brought in uh, consultants who had also had lived experiences of bushfires mm. to say look this is what we went through we know this will work this won't work and they were able to 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 form that um sort of solidarity as a community and they, their recovery process is going really really well in comparison to say areas that haven't had that um solidarity and connection well they've got strong communities but they haven't been able to form anything cohesive uh to help them you know really really recover there's still people in tents there's still people yeah. um you know really really struggling and we're about to enter <laughs> you know, the new summer's bushfire season yeah. now. So, um, you know, some of the things that come out of those, are, you know, changing, for instance, like the way we build or you talked about, you know, as an independent, some of these things that you can really engage with is, um, you know, looking at our situation, our, you know, our eco situation now. How do we go around um, changing some of those things to adapt to what's happened in our environment? You know, we've got a, probably a, a summer that we are going to see again we're going to have that repeat extreme in weather we're going to have the repeat extreme um, differences between you know drought and flood so what are some of the things we can do um, coming forward as a community to maybe look at changing how we build yeah. um, changing so that we're building with it with the idea in mind that there could be a fire season coming through and we're not wiping out entire towns anymore we've got towns that are going to be prepared for that sort of thing that are going to be built to accommodate those extremes so uh, one of the things, and this is something that uh, is, goes across my most of my campaign, is trusting in the people. Uh, so when community groups come together and they say, "All right, we we need we know what we need," and we also have the motivation and and the ability to stand up and get it done, we what we need to do is support those types of groups. Not every community is going to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. So clearly we still need the support structures for those who can't. Mm -hmm. But when when they are, empower that, um, embrace it, learn from that, um, encourage that in other communities, learn those lessons uh, and and spread those lessons mm -hmm. around. So yeah, trust, trust that the people, trust that communities um, know what's best <laughs> mm. uh, and again that comes back to local representation yeah. Yeah. I mean you might remember that um, Andrew Constance also lost his home in the bushfires and um, it really changed the way he looked at mainstream politics I think mm. he was considering I'm not sure if he's actually gone through with it but he was considering running as an independent um, after stepping away from uh, the mayoral electorate that they yep. had in the bigger shire yeah, sure. um, so there's that sense of um, maybe having more of an influence, as you said, as an independent. There's more that you can do when you talk about that crossbench, yep. um, that you've you've got a voice there that maybe speaks more for the community. Um, Absolutely. It, where people can see individually in themselves some of your policies. Mm. And I know that you've got some really great ideas that I've noticed from your platform and your website. Um, do you want to talk to us about some of the um, the policies that you'd like to to see enacted. Sure, that sounds yeah. good. Uh, so I've got some that relate to all of Canberra mm -hmm. and some that are local um, to, uh, to varying degrees of <laughs> local as well. Um, the Some of the, the Canberra ones, come back to that, <laughs> that, tr that word trust. Uh, I was asked last night at an election forum, what does Canberra look like in three years? Mm -hmm. What do I want to see happen in th the next three years? Um, so your vision for Canberra. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, <laughs> convenient, isn't it? And um, and there's a lot of a lot of individual policies and there's there's big ticket items like climate action. Uh, but what it boiled down to for me was I want a situation in three years time or, or right now where we have mutual trust. Mutual trust between the government and the people that the government's meant to represent. Mm -hmm. It's it needs to be less about actually mm -hmm. government on one side mm -hmm. and the people on the other mm -hmm. side come together. So I want to see a government that everybody can trust, mm -hmm. um, and I think that starts with the government trusting the people. Mm -hmm. 
So trust is a big one, and there's a few specific policies. So how, how do you get the government to trust the people? Because I think this this is this is the tricky part, Easy. right? Just trust them. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a belief that the people don't know what's best for them. There's sometimes that seems to come across in, in a government message. You know, and and that it's like the parent across. figure. You know, we know what's good for you, little one. You yes, know, absolutely, pat, and pat, it's pat, just pat. not yeah. true. Yeah. And the solution is simple. It's just come into it with, with a different attitude. Mm-hmm. Don't come into it like that. Just come in as part of the community. The answer, again, is elect an independent. Mm-hmm. Um, find someone local. And I implore mm-hmm. all your listeners, look to your local candidates, your minor parties and your independents. Um, vote, put them um, first up on your ballot paper and then you can definitely vote for any mm-hmm. major party candidates you like after that as well but i think that's how we how we uh, foster trust is put put the right people in yeah so i guess you've got the executive branch of government which is what you're going for which sort of creates all the ideas and stuff and then they say hey guys make it so and they hand it over to the public service to actually get all the work done now i guess at the moment both of those structures which are related but separate um are very much in a top-down sort of command and control structure, yeah. which sort of excludes trust a bit, I think. I don't think it has to. No? No, I don't think it has to. I've seen examples, um, uh, was he a year ago, two years ago, um, the city services director ran a Better Suburbs um, community forum. So I think there was about 60 or 70 citizens uh, and I was one of them mm. who uh, I was there as a Gun Garland Community Council mm. representative. Most citizens were chosen randomly. Mm. Uh, I was fortunate to <laughs> be able to get into that. Um, and f- over the course of three days, I think it was, um, and then also a few more weekend mm. sessions, we uh, we had a bucket of mm. money. It was about $2 million. Uh, and we had all the areas within city services bidding for the money and telling mm. us what they wanted to do with their little mm. slice of it. Uh, and then we had to learn all about those different areas and why what they did currently. Um, and then we had to make a decision on each of these areas if we were going to award them the same as what they were currently getting or give them a little bit of this bucket or take away some of their funding and redirect it to another area. That's like um, a citizen's assembly combined with participatory budgeting. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. I never, never had any idea Canberra had done that. So so we, it was called the Better Suburbs Forum. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, a fair bit of literature about that. You can mm-hmm. check that out. Um, the I think that one happened before the, um, the citizen's jury on compulsory third-party insurance. Yep. Um, and yeah, so it was run, it was, I think it was the first time that Canberra has done anything like that. Uh, and the it, it really seemed from the senior public servants that were made available to us and we were mm. we had access to any resource that we needed really to achieve what we needed to achieve uh, they were they were open and they were trusting mm. um, they they were there and they were genuinely just trying to do good for Canberra as well and and the difference with that is they were trying to do good with Canberra mm. so absolutely it's possible um, there's there's things like that. There's well um, well documented and well processed ideas like citizens juries and and participatory participatory budgeting exercises. Um, <laughs> a bit of a mouthful. They got to rename that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, we, we uh, keep exploring those types of options. Yeah, cool. Are there any uh, schemes like that around the world that you'd really like to see come into the ACT? Um, I know that they exist, but I haven't got any in particular yeah, in mind here. Cool. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that um, I saw you were doing is looking at extending uh, Gold Creek School mm. in Gungarland. So a lot of the um, children that live in the area where I am used to go to the Hall School, and the Hall School closed a few years ago, and mm-hmm. it means that all the kids now bus out to Gold Creek or somewhere else. Um, there's a, a, a real desire for having a, a school closer to our community again. So I'm just curious to hear what extending the Gold Creek School is going to look like for that demographic there. No worries. So um, the the bottom line for that one, for that particular policy, mm-hmm. is that I believe Gungarland needs more college capacity. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gungarland College do something uh, which I, I've spoken about before, which shocked me initially but it seems to work and i and i love the innovation is that on wednesdays they run classes till 8 p.m 
for a college. Mm. And so they have, they it's opt-in. Mm-hmm. Any students who want to take the evening session mm-hmm. on the Wednesday can instead of the morning session. And same for staff. They can opt into that evening session. Uh, and apparently it works really well. Apparently the, the choice that they've got there um, is embraced by enough students. So where it's like changing can... the work week for mm. people. It's like maybe the school system needs a little bit of restructuring to help kids learn better. Yep. Yeah. So mm. absolutely. Uh, and I think that disruption uh, is worth mm-hmm. looking at. Some students have a, a shift at their workplace mm-hmm. before school then on that day. Um, some students might just sleep in or whatever it might do or that's assignment time or whatever it might be so uh so yeah they they've managed to basically increase their capacity by like 20 percent or something by adding another session into their school week Uh, so i think that's great but we need we need more capacity not just tacking on evening classes mm-hmm. which is as i said i'm really happy that it is works well is it because well. the the catchment area is so huge that yeah, there's just the, so many the population. families moving out there you know there's yeah sort of preteen young teen yep. kids in that area is that the population um, demographics uh, often go in waves so there's mm-hmm. a, a popular a, a a um, boom of children, <laughs> a baby boom, <laughs> as it were, um, and then they all grow up. But in Gangalan, it's not uh, it's not a bubble that is growing up. It's a wave, and it's just coming, and, and more and more families are uh, growing. And it's a very um, multicultural suburb to Gangalan, so you suburb. see a lot of large families there as well, I've noticed. Yeah. Yeah. And, in fact, that's something that the government has said previously. They didn't anticipate so many multicultural families mm-hmm. living in the apartments that they were mm-hmm. building. So they were going for high density in Gangalan, mm-hmm. uh, in the town centres and along the light rail corridor. Um, but when they build a one-bedroom house, they were expecting a couple to yeah. live there. Or a single it's, professional. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and what they were getting in these apartments mm-hmm. is larger multicultural families. Mm-hmm. So the population just got way ahead of expectations. <laughs> they, you can tell by the streets. I drive around Gungala and I think these are the narrowest streets in Canberra. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> so they... Um, they've been, uh, the government has been adding capacity to the mm-hmm. primary schools and the high schools... Uh, and they're just absolutely silent on colleges. Mm. So there's a strong feeling in Gungahlin mm. that we need the college capacity. Uh, my kids go to school in Gungahlin and they're going, they're going to be going to college somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I had a look around at what type of options we could have for that college capacity. Um, one of the things we need is available land. Um, and basically the, mm. the only land big enough that's zoned in the right way for a school mm. is on Gold Creek's site. Mm. Um, Gold Creek run the International Baccalaureate curriculum mm. instead of the normal state-based curriculum. Is that the one at Tilopia as well? Uh, yeah. Tilopia runs the same one. Yeah, yeah. I think so. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it, they, so they mm. do the uh, the primary years program mm-hmm. and then the mid-years mm-hmm. program. And then if any students want to complete the diploma program, they go elsewhere. There's nowhere in Gungahlin for that. I think it's, is it Narrabunda? So Narrabunda do does it, yeah. but also uh, Melbourne Copeland does mm-hmm. that as well. Um, and... So I thought, well, we need a new college. I thought, rather than just another college, what if it was something a little bit different? Uh, what if it was the IB diploma? And I thought, well, Gold Creek's got, got the land, uh, they've got the students, we've got the population. So I thought that one made sense and, and provided a different offering for Gungahlin as well. Have you canvassed the community out there about that? This has been really good community response to, to that proposal? There's been a lot of uh, positivity around a second college. Mm-hmm. Um, what that might look like is still up for debate. The... If, if it was Gold Creek, if it was um, an IB diploma curriculum, that is an optional extra on top of the normal mm-hmm. curriculum. So even if students went to Gold Creek College and didn't want to um, do the additional work required mm-hmm. for the IB diploma, they still get their secondary school certificate mm-hmm. anyway. Uh, so given that it's an option, um, I, I think it's quite reasonable. There are some people out there who love the IB program mm-hmm. and there's some people out there who don't like mm-hmm. it. So. Mm-hmm. So with, with schools, we noticed when when we moved from primary up to high school that the, the that big community of parents who get to know each other, like I met people I never would have met through my social circles, just through bumping into them, taking the kids to school. And in high school, that's quite different. It's, it's mm. not really like that. Um, so the community around the school sort of goes down. Um, but that leaves a place for the rest of the community, which is completely lacking of a space to meet, mm. like... Often in my community work, I'll find, well, what what do you need? Well, we, there's just nowhere to meet for yep. free. I, I need mm-hmm. money to raise money just to meet, yep. um, which is terrible. So is is a, a high school after hours a place for the community to meet or for even 
urban farming or mm. all sorts of stuff. Um, absolutely. However, as you said, lack of space. Mm. Most of those high schools are all fully booked <laughs> yeah, right. after hours all the time. Uh, so new schools in Canberra are built with that in mind. So mm. they're often built in a, in a modular way. Well, modular is probably not really the right word. Um, but... The school can use all the facilities. Uh, the school halls and staff rooms are all built closer to the front and they can be locked off separately. So community groups can hire uh, the hall or the staff rooms or, or they can convert. They're all convertible spaces uh, and they're all designed to get as much after hours use as possible. Mm-hmm. So they're designed as real community assets. Uh, so, yeah, that's, that's definitely something that would be factored mm-hmm. into a new college there. Mm-hmm. Um, but... We've, we've just got, as you said, such a lack of space. I can't see another college uh, making, <laughs> making enough room for, yeah, the, for yeah, the demand. Yeah. Might be need to be a bit more distributed. Too. Yeah. Well, I've also uh, just yesterday, day before, I think, um, uh, announced that I want to um, build an indoor sports facility up in Casey as well. Um, and, and straight away, community sporting groups have got in touch and said, yes, we... <laughs> Desperate for space, uh, and they're often based out of schools at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Um, but they're desperate for dedicated sporting space, indoor space. So, so um, jumped at that. Yeah, that's another big community builder. Mm, yeah. mm, definitely. And, uh, you know, one of the things I've noticed if you go to the UK or old Europe, you know, things are really centered around community hubs. Mm. You know, they've all got their local farmers markets, not just one farmers market for the whole area. Every, every street's got one, and yep. everybody's got their local shops. and every village has got its little hub. So in Canberra, I've noticed there's some areas which don't have local shops or that have local shops that have been sort of semi, I wouldn't, wouldn't still want to use the word derelict, but they've been they've well, been looking sad for a while. Mm. And I recently saw the rejuvenation of skull and shops mm-hmm. and what a difference that made for the community. Like it was a bit dodgy for a while. There was no, there's no, still no supermarket there, but there's a lot of other great things going on. And yep. It's revitalised that whole area of Scullin. So you've got some proposals to um, to rejuvenate local shopping centres, I believe, or just yes, create yeah. shops where there are none right now. Yeah, there need to be. <laughs> Have you seen Girilang shops recently? No, I haven't. So I'm just showing a picture oh, there now. Oh, my goodness. So when you uh, it looks there. like something from Sarajevo, you know, right now. That's what I'm looking at. It's, it's a picture. It's Girilang that, X yeah. shops. Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's mm-hmm. I mean, derelict. It, mm-hmm. it's, it's a ruin. So that's mm-hmm. been that way for 15 years. Um, there's been... F- Four approved development applications to build to rebuild the shops. Um, so were they torn down? I mean, I've been living away yeah. from Australia for a while, so I'm a bit out of touch with what's yeah, happened so in the last down. decade. Yeah. 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 So 15 plus years ago, um, it was, I think it was about 15 years ago, the last shop there closed. The so IGA it was for closed. redevelopment or just, um, just vacant shops that were sitting there? Yeah, it it, it started to mm-hmm. to lose. Um, Tenants and mm-hmm. went in a downward spiral, mm-hmm. uh, but it's been planned for redevelopment almost since it all closed. Uh, as I said, the first um, development application was approved quite early in the piece, but there's been repeated legal um, challenges that have all eventually failed. But they achieved what they wanted to do of no competing shops. So it was all launched by nearby shopping centres. Um, so yeah, Girilang shops they've been they've been fighting. It was a big um, election issue for them in 2016 uh, and there was promises made and mm-hmm. and four years later yeah. was another approved application mm-hmm. gone through and still not mm-hmm. still no mm-hmm. progress on that one um this election um it's it's still sitting there but I, i'm getting a sense that the people are well you've always got a generation now that have lived there like you're going to have kids that were born around this time that are moving yeah. into adulthood that are going to be moving away from the area and they've never had local shops yeah yeah absolutely yeah. so uh so i've been i've spoken to the developers who own that block there now um and we're, we're looking at ways we can advocate to overcome the hurdles that mm-hmm. they've had put up in front of them uh to make sure we we get that one there and then the other um the other community that is very passionate about their local shops at the moment is throsby so throsby is a suburb that is being developed at the moment there's about 500 homes there which um myself and some volunteers all letterbox dropped uh, about this issue just the other day so i think there's about 520 homes currently with letterboxes um, I like that. Currently with letterboxes. It really is a new development. There's not even letterboxes everywhere yet. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah there were some homes that you, you're looking at them and you think, I, th- I think somebody lives here, but there's just no letterbox yet. Um, so when, when there's the suburb was planned, they had one block that was zoned for commercial. And the, the vague advice given from suburban land agency was that 
um, to the question, will there be shops in Throsby? They pointed to that block and they said, well, there's a, there's a commercial block right there. Um, then they went and sold it to a residential property developer with no conditions. Wow. And now there's 72 townhouses approved and, and under construction. Who won't have a shop to go to. Who won't have a shop to go yeah. to. Uh, so we've, we're calling there on the ministers currently responsible, um, and they've got a few days left uh, before they're no longer responsible, uh, to actually pull from sale next door to that commercial block, there's uh, 23 residential blocks. And what we're asking for is... Just slow down. Don't sell them just yet because they're looking to sell those blocks really soon, like within the next week and a half. Slow down. Can we have a talk about this? Everyone there expected shops. Everyone wants this community focal point, some type of community focal point. Uh, they were they thought it was going to be shops. They're paying as much. They're paying up to a thousand dollars a square meter for land in Throsby. Uh, there was a recent record sales price mm. for a residential property in Canberra and that mm. was in Red Hill and that was a thousand dollars a square meter. They're paying premium prices for that. Without land, the infrastructure. Without the infrastructure. Yeah. Um, and they were as I said, they were misled to think that yeah. they were getting shops. And I imagine, you know, when they were sold on the idea of building in Throsby, they were probably very slick brochures saying this is you know, sort of an architect's rough up of shops and community and happy people walking their dogs in parks and yeah. and they're just getting high density housing it sounds like yeah yeah and it's all very um it's all very common the when a block is owned for commercial yeah. townhouses is one of the permitted uses on that block type but so is that a bit of a sneaky way of getting in townhouses yeah. absolutely yeah. The, zoc- the block was owned commercial you when you you shouldn't have to be a planning expert you shouldn't have to review the planning mm-hmm. codes look at all the possible uses mm-hmm. and particularly not when the suburban land agency was pointing at that block in response to the question, will we get shops? Oh, well, there's a block there. Yeah. And now, yeah, they've actually now gone back and changed their website to say it's up to the whoever buys it to decide what they want to put on it. <laughs> right. In, in response to the... Um, yeah, well, $1,000 per square metre, you can see what they're going to go with, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Now, very big on community. That's come through really strongly. Our humanity, of course, is part of a much bigger community and the economy, of course, is nested in this community as well. That's it's the rest of nature on the planet. How, how are you? How are you thinking that Canberra might fit in best with the rest of its surrounding environment, so that it's a, a benefit rather than a, a drag on it? Um, so I think Canberra can play a huge role, a nation-leading role in renewable technology, um, in in um, in climate change and climate action. Um, I think that absolutely needs to be a focus of everything we do, uh, every policy. So the, the sports centre needs to be completely carbon neutral. Um, yeah, so we need to be, um, as I said, nation leading on on all of that. Um, there's plenty of room for brand new industry. Uh, we could not only can we help that larger uh, community that we're part of, we could make a lot of money doing it. This is this is the time to be investing in how we help the environment because very soon everybody else is going to realize. I mean, most people have already realized this is what this is the next big industry. This is what we need to be focusing on. And I think I was just listening to something recently about um, the expansion to Canberra Hospital. They were talking about um, not using gas and going 100% electricity, mm. and it was going to cost something like half a percent of the total cost of the expansion to convert it all to yeah. electricity and it was going to be like virtually carbon neutral at that point. So if you can look at something as big as the Canberra Hospital expansion and say, okay, if they're willing to make it work for something, uh, a, a major infrastructure part of Canberra, then maybe doing something like that on a smaller scale per suburb yep. or, or per community group is very, very doable. You know, like scaling it down. Absolutely. So one yeah. of the policies I'm working on at the moment uh, is around community batteries, mm-hmm. uh, and it is batteries on on the on the local side of mm-hmm. the transformers on the local side of the grid, mm-hmm. uh, so that any renewable energy that is generated by a particular community mm-hmm. by a suburb um, doesn't have to get fed back into the grid because that's mm-hmm. where a lot of the mm-hmm. expense is. Once you transfer it to the grid, you're in, you've incurred a lot of the expense mm-hmm. of it. Keep. Keep that local. Mm-hmm. Use the energy mm-hmm. local. Uh, it's 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 
good for the environment. It's good for everyone, and it saves us money. Sustainable it's communities, no, no yeah. brainer. Yeah, no, mm. that's a great idea. Mm. Uh, one of the other things you've got going in the Gungahlin area too is um, a new police station. I know that's mm. been a bit of a bone of contention for a while. Yeah, <laughs> and Gungahlin Police Station serves my area as well, so they have to come all the way out to Hall. So, right, um, yeah. yeah, they've got a pretty big area to cover and not a lot of resources. Absolutely. There. So they yeah. were built. Um, what, 20 years ago as a part-time station. Mm-hmm. Um, it was only meant to be operating during the day. Uh, and it was always built as a joint facility. So they've mm-hmm. got five different um, emergency service <laughs> based in there. Uh, and as the population has exploded in Gungahlin, uh, they just haven't been able to, they haven't been afforded the opportunity to keep up with that mm-hmm. growth. There's been a couple of upgrades along the way, mm-hmm. uh, but the, the resources are just not there. Mm-hmm. Um when they bring in um, uh, victims for a victim statement, they come in the same door as the accused. As the perpetrator. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. They, um, whereas normally, uh, like at the, the Bill Connor station, they've got separate entrances and, mm. and they've got separate areas, whereas up in Gungalan, they just don't have that. They don't mm-hmm. have room for interviews. They don't have... It's just, it's just room. Mm-hmm. Um, they've got a lot of great people, mm. but we're not treating them very well. We're not valuing mm-hmm. what they're doing. Um, so they're not being even adequate resources to do their job. Well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So there are a lot of uh, uh, mental health impacts of that as well. Um, the police, uh, I've been told, feel that they're quite well equipped to to deal with that mental health ramifications, mm-hmm. but prevention is better than the cure, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, if we were if we we're valuing the police, mm-hmm. showing uh, the police live in our community as well. Mm-hmm. This is their, and again, this is not an us versus them thing. We're all here together. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, if we can all show more mutual trust and value, uh, then we can head off a lot of those problems to begin with. It'd be lovely. Um, so I've got a few more questions, Scotty, but I'm oh, going to look, give you some airtime oh, here. Was we getting low on it? <laughs> no, that's all right. That's all right. I, I was wondering one thing. I mean, um, you, you've set up a political party. Mm-hmm. So have you got clones of yourself to run in, in the different seats or have you got other people in on the party to run in different seats or is it just you? Uh, so I do have other candidates who will be running up in Yerby with me, yep. um, at, at least one. You need to have two to get your own column, otherwise okay, you're yep, still yep. ungrouped. Yep. Um, so there will be at least two of us and it is not just a clone. <laughs> um, my kids are still a bit too young to go on that. Um but I also, uh, there are a few other people who have expressed interest in championing their particular cause or, or area. Um, but running in an election is, can be a big deal. Um, putting your name forward for that can stick around. It was a, a huge um, decision to actually register a party in my name. I know now that I can never hide from this again. This is, <laughs> this is here forever. So that was a huge decision for me and my family to make. Uh, yeah, so uh, there, there are, will be a few on the David Pollard independent <laughs> ticket, uh, but only in Yerby. We're not looking. Um, I have actually had candidates from elsewhere, um, or sorry, potential candidates from elsewhere, ask if they could run for my party in other electorates. Um, I, I got a lot of support after the last after the last election. After 2016. Yeah, it would have been better if that support came earlier. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but yeah, um, and so, yeah, so some people see. The, the kind of, I guess, brand, and they say, well, that's, mm. that's something, it, all the values align, mm. and you've got the party structure, you've got the mm. column, you've got all that. Is there something we could do there? For this election, I'm just focusing on my own electorate, um, but uh, especially after I get in, I could mm. absolutely run David Pollard independent candidates mm. all across mm. Canberra. Mm. Love it. <laughs> so that's sort of the greater vision there down the road. <laughs> I think that every electorate should have a crossbench yeah. candidate. Uh, I think they should all find a local candidate that... that well, that's your community voice right there. A community yeah. voice yeah. in every electorate. And I think putting... I mean, any crossbench is going for balance of power. That's, that's, mm-hmm. the, that's the dream. And I think putting that with one person, even if that person is me, um, it's, it's a... It's an interesting proposition. Mm. So I think that a, a few crossbench candidates from across Canberra would be great. Mm. And the other thing that I think the public values is transparency. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they I think there's a because that the word suspicious. There's they're suspicious that a lot of things are kept from them that are hidden from them, or that, that there's a lot of clever speak used mm-hmm. and things aren't really clear, like, you know, zoning something commercial and yes. then building town townhouse complexes on it. Mm-hmm. So you talked about um, you know, MLI's not censoring discussion on social media, like having that transparency. Um, so 
how, how transparent do you think you need to be? You've talked about putting yourself out there, your family out there, you know, you can't hide anymore. Mm. <laughs> so how, how much is enough and how much you complete, know, do you think the public needs? Complete transparency. Yeah. Um, uh, I've said if, if I can't publicly mm-hmm. explain and stand behind a decision that I've made, then it probably wasn't the right decision. Mm. Um, there's... There's some commercial inconfidence mm. elements to it all. Fine, that that's mm. um, that's one factor of it, uh, and I would have to see more of the behind the scenes of that mm. to really get an appreciation. Um, but no, just just be honest with people, mm. and I and I think that comes back to the trust. Mm-hmm. Um, if you say here I'm an open book and mm. I'm trusting mm. you with everything I've got to mm. the, that is all that is me. Mm. Um, I think that's a way that it works. I yeah. think it works well. Yeah, and that's what CapAd is trying to advocate for. You know, is to, to have this level of transparency and and create this level of trust, mm. so that we can vote for people, not mm. just policies and platforms. Um, you know, I, I can see that um, getting to know you just in this little short time we've had here. You know, you're a very likable fellow, David, and Thank you. you know, very easy to talk to. So, if folks you run into David out there, you know, have have a chat with him. Have a, um, ha- I don't know, I don't want have people bombard you coming out when you're trying to do your grocery shopping. No, that's fine. But, Please come and have um, a chat. Yeah, so if you're wearing your badge, is that okay to come absolutely, and have a chat? Absolutely, that's, that's, that's a, If you recognise me, that's yeah. fine. You can come and say hello anytime. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, anything else you wanted to add there, Scotty? No, no, no. Thanks yeah. for coming in, David. That's been uh, been very interesting. Yeah, it's it's just been great having you here. And is there anything else you would like to add, David, before we finish? We've just got a few minutes left if you wanted to cover anything that we hadn't touched on. Oh, I think we do have an announcement or two as yeah, well. Yeah, we do. Oh, all right, I'll be really quick. Let me just have a look. Uh, we spoke about the school uh, student sporting vouchers. I like the the active kids program from New South Wales, so I'm looking to bring that to ACT. Um, upgraded sports facilities for Gun Garland. Uh, a lot of our outdoor ovals. Uh, I think I was saying that earlier. Not fit for purpose. Local employment in Gun Garland. That's yeah. actually a huge one. Uh, I for all feel, these multi families that are living there. I, yeah. I feel that the government is heading us towards being a dormitory suburb, packing us all onto the light rail, which I love. Uh, and taking us out to the jobs, local jobs in Gungahl and so important for a, for a thriving local economy and community. Okay. Well, thank you very much, David. It's been a real pleasure having you here this morning. I'm sorry we didn't have more time. As no, that's quite Scotty right. mentioned earlier, we're at the station's having a, some technical difficulties. We're doing a, a huge upgrade to improve our listeners' experience. So uh, we'll be back hopefully next week with our full-length show. Uh, so we've been listening to David Pollard, who's the independent candidate for Urabi, who was joining us this morning as part of our ACT Elections 2020 series. You have been listening this morning to Scotty Foster and Zena Richardson with Behind the Lines on X Community Radio, 98.3 FM in Canberra. So get informed and get voting, everybody. And get onto the 2XX website, 2XFM.org.au. Click support us and then do it. <laughs>